everybody. Welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Bree. And here with us today, we have author Tara Taylor Quinn. Thank you for joining us yes, today. Thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> to be here. Yay. So, first question <laughs> Bree and I have been laughing about this. What do we call you? Is it Tara? Is it Tara Taylor? <laughs> it's it's Tara. It's okay. Tara. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> although, although professionally, a lot of people just call me TTQ. So like when I'm with Harlequin and in meetings, a lot of people just call me TTQ, but I go by Tara. That's so. awesome. Okay, I, love, I love that because as we've been like fangirling over the past couple of days, I'm like, we're chatting with TTQ. Yeah. <laughs> That's our 100th book coming out. <laughs> So yeah, congratulations on the 100th book. That is so exciting. Yeah. Are you doing anything to celebrate that release or have you already? So, okay, maybe I celebrated the release when I sold the book. I don't celebrate releases. I know that sounds crazy, but release time is um, nerve wracking because it's like having a baby and you send it out there. And if people don't love it, then it's just painful. You know, mm -hmm. so I mean, when I my first book was out, I was super excited because I hadn't learned yet, you know, um, that it can be painful. Um, I love to every time I have a book out, I love seeing it on the shelves. So I always go out and get a picture and it means as much now as it did the very first time. That's so but the celebration is when I sign the contract to write the book. That's yeah. when I celebrate because that's so exciting to me that I get to do that. So was that a lesson that you kind of learned through time or, you know, when you were first putting out those first books, it's like excitement, excitement. And then as you put out more books, it's just like, like, when was that shift for you or was it automatic? Like you put your baby out into the world and then readers react to it. And so is that something you learned gradually or I think um yeah I mean I didn't know it at the beginning for sure and when I first published um it was a whole different world mm -hmm. so you know it was if you had a Harlequin category book out it was successful and that's not yeah. to say they're not now they are but um there's so much more noise out there so it's just a different world. Everything everybody looks at, it's just different. And, you know, ebook and print book and, you know, there's just so much involved. And so I think it's like anything, the more you know, the more you worry, you know. So when I was a baby author, I didn't know to worry. So I don't really know. I think the shift was gradual. Um, yeah. But I, you know, you learn things like depending on how your books do is what your next contract may or may not be, you know, and so all of these different things come to play. So I just, I celebrate when I get the contract. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I mean, so your first book was what, 1993? Is that yeah. correct? Correct. The 90s is like, to me, a classic era. Okay, right. I'm mentally still stuck in the 90s, I think. <laughs> what was publishing 
romance like yeah. in 1993? Like what world did you enter as a baby author in yeah. 93? Oh my word, it was so exciting. It was just absolutely exciting. Before my first book even hit the shelves, I was invited to my first Harlequin party and it was in New York City that year. And oh my word, it was my first time in New York City. I met the publisher on down. I met my editor for the first time. I was taken out to eat. I was a Rita finalist actually with my first book. Wow. wow. And, and the Harlequin party was at the um, RWA mm -hmm. conference, you know, so it was my first, all of this stuff. It was so exciting. Um, but back then it was kind of cool because she got fan letters in the mail. You know, now everything is, in some ways, it's great that we can connect on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. All of that is great. But at the same time, you kind of miss that where it's a it's a full letter. It's not just, hey, got your book or hey, loved your book or, you know, it's like they write you this whole letter about how your book affected them or, you know, you got so much more in-depth feedback back then. Um, and publishing was there was no ebook. Mm -hmm. So you just, I, I don't know. I, and maybe again, it wasn't, maybe again, it was that I didn't know enough, but I just knew my book was going to be in every book Harlequin category was sold. You didn't worry about that kind of stuff back then. You know, mm -hmm. now you do, you, and maybe other authors did, but I didn't. Yeah. So. It feels like ebook has you know, wonderfully like opened a lot of doors for a lot of authors, but what did it do for Harlequin books? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, one thing that's really exciting to me, uh, ebook writing for category romance is think about it. Ebooks, I mean, category books, they lasted a month yeah, and they yeah. were gone. And if anybody wanted to buy your book, they had to go buy it new. You couldn't, like the books you sold in that first month, that's what you sold. Except you had um, international sales, which we still get those. Like I just looked today and just saw that I just had a new sale um, from a, my very first Mira book actually just sold to Italy oh, and wow. it's coming out in June. So I just saw that today. So that part's exciting. But, you know, back then it was just, what was there and it was that month and then it was gone. Now with ebook, it lives on. So for instance, this hundredth book is the sixth book in a series. Well, the first book, you know, and the first through the fifth books back in the olden days, the only way readers would have been able to buy them was to find them at a used bookstore, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, because they were not available or maybe order them through Harlequin, yeah. but that was it. You couldn't go buy them now, click, click, and they've got, the five books right there ready to read because of ebook. So I think that makes it really good. I think the downside to it is um, the all of the books that are put out there, so many of the self-pub and indie books are so good. And then you have a lot where people just don't take writing seriously enough. They don't see it as a craft. They don't see it as an art. And they just throw stuff out there and it makes it difficult for readers to find, you know, books that they, that they can actually really get into books that are well edited. It makes it harder to find because there's no way to really designate 
then what happens is you lose reader trust because they don't, you know, money, money is precious. And if you've spent money on, well, I mean, you guys are readers, but I know it is a reader. If I spend money on books that are not well edited or um, where a writer just didn't take the the time and the care to the craft, mm-hmm. you know, that's upsetting. Then you're afraid to kind of dip in the pond again. So I think that's the downside to it. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. So the, their second chance baby is book six in the parent portal series. Yes. When you sat down, when you sit down to write the book that winds up being the first in a series, do you already know, do you already have an idea that this is the beginning of a series and how did both your first series and this current series come to you? Cause the first series you wrote from like 2000 to 2000. Yeah. The shelter Valley series. Yes. <laughs> so. so I actually have one that's even longer than the shelter Valley series. The, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question, but where secrets are safe. Yes. Started, uh, I can't even tell you when, and it's the 18th book is out in June. So Mm -hmm. it is still an ongoing series. But so um, they come about in different ways. Um, In in, uh, Shelter Valley, my editor came to me and said, you know, we'd like to see a series um, set in a small town. And she actually gave me the name for the small town. Because she owned, it's so fun. I'm, my editor, uh, Paula Eichelhoff, was like the editor. And she was she was voted the when there were editorial awards, she won the first editor of the year award. She just was phenomenal. And uh, we're still in touch, even though she's retired. Um, but she had this little um, property. Uh, she's in Canada, but they she and her husband had a property where they would drive to. And it was remote and they had a trailer on the property and she was driving there one time with her husband and they passed a little road that said Shelter Valley. And it just struck her as, oh, that would make a great small town series. And so she said, let's call it Shelter Valley. The, um, the actual plotting was all me. Um, and it really just came a book at a time unless there was a story in the book, you know, uh, things segue, you know, because I knew that I was allowed to write more books there. Like when characters popped up, I would let them live and breathe because I knew they could have a story. They could have their own story. And they just kept coming. Well, then we let Shelter Valley go for a little while. And then the company said, hey, let's go back to Shelter Valley. Let's do three more books. And so I came up with Shelter Valley Scholarship. Um, where they were giving scholarships to the college, because Shelter Valley is all um, centered around a university. It's a small town. The whole town revolves around this university. And it actually is like where I went to college. So I went to college in Searcy, Arkansas, at this, it was a school called Harding University. And the whole town really revolved around Harding. There was not really much else industry. There wasn't a lot else. It was just this, but it was a very well-known it was small, it was select, but it was a very well-known school. And that's how I made Montford University. I made it in, in Shelter Valley. I made it like it's nationally renowned because you know, as an author, you can do whatever you want. So Absolutely. I just made it successful and there it was, <laughs> yeah. but, 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 um, 
anyway, so then we had the scholarship once and actually we still talk about perhaps going back to Shelter Valley again. That's the thing about series is you can keep revisiting and revisiting. Yes. So then where Secrets Are Safe is a very different kind of series, very, very close to me. So I um I had some time in my life where I was not treated well. Mm-hmm. And my editorial staff knew about that. And so they actually stood by me through some tough stuff, which was a wonderful thing. Um, but years ago, my editor came and said, okay, you know a lot about this. Can you give us a series? So they wanted a series set um, around a domestic violence shelter. So what I did was created a resort like women's shelter that I would have given anything to be able to go to when I needed it. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have found it, but I would have loved it to have been there. And I set it off the coast of California and it's set, it has a private beach it's on acres. It's just, and I made up the town, Santa, um, Santa Raquel, California. Um, and, and so all of the stories kind of came from there. They don't all take place at the shelter, but they all have something to do with the shelter, somebody that worked there, or maybe the shelter is helping out with something. Um, and, it, and it just kind of grew from there. It started out with three books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And the um, I met the the woman who founded the first domestic violence shelter in the United States. And I ended up I'm, a, I'm an inline skater. And so my husband and I um, started to um, host an inline skate race event here in Phoenix and, you know, donate the money. And so it's all the money was donated to both local and this national um, shelter. But the woman who founded that first shelter, she came out for the first skate. And I mean, you know, we've done some wonderful things with it. And, um, you know, my, my thing was when I was involved, you know, it was my fault. And so many people that I I don't want to say victim because I am not a victim, but so many people before they realize that they're being mistreated, they do think it's their fault. They bring right. it on themselves. It's it's a choice they made. It's the this, it's the it's this irritating habit, you know, whatever it is, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. So my hope was, okay, romance novels, they take us away, right? Yeah. And they make us feel strong and they show us hope mm-hmm. and and take us to that happy ending. Every single one of those things are what these women need. Mm-hmm. So if I can help one woman see herself enough in one of these books to find her way out, to believe that there's hope afterwards, to believe it's possible to get out, to believe that you can love again, and I am proof positive of that. So HCI Books, um, which they did Chicken Soup for the Soul, it's a nonfiction publisher. Yeah. They did a bunch of books. So they had approached me several years ago to write my true life story, my true life love story. And I said, well, I can't do that unless my husband tells his parts mm-hmm. because I'm not, I'm going to just tell it from my perspective. And for somebody to really see it, they have to see it through both parts. 
And so he actually did. He sat down, bless his heart, he agreed to. He wrote his parts. The prose sucked, but the <laughs> but the but the the thoughts mm-hmm. and the words they didn't. So oh. I just took his exact words and made it into sentences. To ha- he just wrote all of his thoughts down. I didn't change his thoughts. I didn't even change his words. I just added if ands and buts and commas and you know I made it sentences and I put it in paragraphs mm-hmm. um, for his his sections. Um, so they published that book, but unfortunately, the program they published it in was canceled before the book came out. Okay. So the book was published, but it didn't make it on any bookstore shelves. It was just available online. And um, I mean, it may, I, maybe 100 copies got to bookshelves. But um, so we have copies here and I got my rights back. Finally, I just let it sit there a long time. I got my rights back um, a couple of years ago and it's still just sitting here waiting for something to happen with it. But anyway, so that's the Where Secrets Are Safe series. And that um, the 18th book is out in romantic suspense. So when Super Romance line was canceled, romantic suspense picked up Where Secrets Are Safe. So the 18th book is the 18th book is out in June. Um, The parent portal, the way that got started I was writing a previous series called the daycare chronicles. And that was, um, that was just, I just sold it to them. Just, I wanted to do a thing around a daycare. That was all I knew. That was what they bought. We didn't know what the stories were. It just was going to involve a daycare. Well, the last book in the, in the, um, daycare chronicles, I loved, I, well, I loved the heroine, of course, but I loved this woman I met. She was the owner of a fertility clinic. And I was like, oh, I can see this. <laughs> so I talked to my editor at Special Edition and she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where the parent portal came from. She actually shows up, the the parent portal itself shows up in the last book of the daycare chronicles. It's a real small, small part. It's really just a brief mention, but that's where the parent portal series came from. So, and I have a brand new series coming out. I have seven books coming out next year. Wow. Seven Seven of them. And several of them are from this new series. It's called Sierra's web. And I'm so excited about it. I came up with this idea just all on my own. And I talked to my, I had a meeting with um, some of the people at Harlequin last year um, in New York, um, editorial and, you know, some of my people there. And I said, look, you guys have got this idea. What do you think? And they all (laughs) loved it. So I wrote it up and ended up selling it both to special edition and romantic suspense. Oh, nice. So it's coming out. It's a, yeah, which doesn't happen, but it's coming out next year from both. It'll be out. And it's, um, it's a story about, uh, Sierra's web is a firm of experts and the firm has seven partners and they were all college, um, best friends, Mm -hmm. but they bonded because in college, um, they had a friend who disappeared and all seven of them worked together, went to a professor who went to the police and through what these seven kids did, they actually ended up finding out that their friend was dead, but they solved her murder. So 
Harlequin had me write a, a short, it's called Trusting Her Betrayer, and it's on Harlequin right now for free. And that is that story. Okay. Um, and so that is, so the series starts 10 years later. These seven friends are spending their lives using their expertise to help people. So we go, we have a doctor, we have a, a child life specialist, we have a psychiatrist, we have a lawyer, uh, we have an education person, you know, we have all these different, we have an IT expert. So think about it, the stories are endless. We oh, go yeah. all over the United States, and each of the partners has a team of experts that works under them in their field. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's not the seven partners, um, because we'd run out of romances for one thing, but just, just logistics, one partner can't be everywhere. Right. So they, they work with people and hire people in their team. So anyway, Sierra's web is next year. That's exciting. Um, now speaking of like the special editions and stuff, I have been reading Harlequin feels like forever. I got my start with the special or the super romance line. And your name always would crop up. And those would be some of the first ones that I would get. Thank now, you. Now, is it different writing for, back when you wrote for Super Edition, is it different for Special Edition? Like, or Super Romance to Special Edition? Is there a big difference? Because I find the books to be similar-esque with the whole family aspect and things like that. Is there a big difference or is it pretty much the same? So I'm actually glad to hear you say that. Um, Way back when, Special Edition was owned by Silhouette and Super Romance was owned by Harlequin. They were two different companies, right? And they were basically the same books. Okay. Then Harlequin bought Silhouette. And so then you had Special Edition over here and Super Romance over here. And it was a little confusing mm -hmm. because the editorial was basically the same. The promise was the same. How did readers know where to go? Mm -hmm. So they shortened the special edition books. Okay. So Super Romance was 80,000 words. Special edition was 60,000, 55,000, 60,000 mm -hmm. words. Then, you know, they played around with different things. And I mean, we won't go into all the history of it. <laughs> but um, where we ended up was Super Romance being canceled and Special Edition still alive. However, Special Edition is only 55,000 words. Yeah. Super Romance is 80,000 words. So you had a lot more room for subplot in the Super Romances. They were like bigger books. They were like the mainstream women's fiction in being published as category romance, yeah. you know, yeah. sort of. Mm -hmm. So now with special edition, it's growing and I'm really, really excited about it because they've raised the word count. Mm -hmm. The books are getting longer. The books are um, with the subplots. And so a lot of that's the same. Romantic suspense mm -hmm. is, is what I write for romantic suspense is exactly my super romances that had suspense in them. Nice. And what I write for special edition is now pretty much exactly what I wrote for super romance now that they're getting longer, but without suspense, that's the difference. One has suspense, one doesn't, but. That's interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, which one do you prefer writing for? Do you, do you prefer the special, uh, the special editions or do you prefer the romantic suspense? Cause a lot of okay, your special well, editions 
have some suspense in there anyway. <laughs> well, special edition isn't supposed to have any suspense, but what I do is I, I see a difference between, so suspense is like danger. Yeah. Yeah. Where what I do in my special edition is have questions unanswered, more like mystery. Yes. So without the danger. Gotcha. Um, to me, that keeps me coming to the computer every day. Nice. So I figure if it keeps me coming to the computer, it keeps readers turning the pages and coming to the books. Um, politically, I can't tell you which one I prefer because, you know, my <laughs> editors could be watching this. And... <laughs> I love them both. That's what she does. Even, even, if I, even if I could tell you the truth of the matter is I need them both. I honestly yeah. need them both. Um, I can't, I can't just do one or the other and be satisfied inside myself. So okay. I'm, I'm, I love them both. Now you also just recently published one, um, in the, in the, um, uh, romantic suspense line that was part of the great, uh, Coltons of Grave Gulch series. Did mm -hmm. you enjoy collaborating with the other authors for that? Do, do you like doing those kind of series? I love doing those. So I started doing those way back in Super Romance. We did the True Blood series. This is, I'll try to talk fast, but this is a funny story. So when you're writing these things as authors, we're on loops and we're talking to each other while we're writing because <laughs> things come up as you're creating your book and you have bullet points of things you know that have to happen in your book to fit the series, but your own story is always your own. Yeah. So way back when, and we were doing, um, I think it was True Blood, Texas, and there was a group of us authors, and we, there was this old guy named Vern, and he was basically a bad guy, but he was one of the characters' uncles, not mine, mm -hmm. but one of the characters, but Vern had to die, and he had to die in my book, and that's all I knew, <laughs> Vern had to die. Well, I'm writing this book. And I'm, I'm kind of late getting it done. I'm not, I mean, I wasn't going to miss my deadline, but I was, I was right going to be up to my deadline. So I'm writing really late at night and I'm a panster. I do not plot. Mm -hmm. I just, I can't plot. If I plot, I've already, I've already experienced the book. It's done. Yeah. It, I, I learn. I, to me, writing is like reading. Okay. You know, when I read books, I don't know what's going to happen next. That's how it is when I'm writing and it's exciting to get. I can't wait to get to the page every day because I never know where they're going to take me. Mm -hmm. So this particular night, I don't know if I was tired or whatever, but Vern had died. And for some reason, he went to the bathroom. I mean, you don't ever go to the bathroom in romance no. books. Maybe, <laughs> no, maybe, <laughs> maybe somebody had, but Vern died on the toilet and <laughs> I have, I, I kid you not. And there were other things that were happening in the book that it just fit, but I, I will never forget the email I sent at two o'clock in the morning to my fellow authors. The first one just said, Vern died. <laughs> and the second one said on the toilet. And I, I just, I mean, it was so ridiculous and yet it fit that book. And I thought, okay, well, maybe our editor is going to take it out, but she didn't because it did fit the book. That's, That's just awesome. how those things work. But with the Coltons, um, so that was my third Colton of Grape Gulch. That's, and I actually just was offered another Colton contract a couple of weeks ago. So I'm very excited about that. Yes. So I'm doing um, Coltons of Colorado. That'll be oh out next year. So, um, but it's all of these different Coltons. I love it. I mean, and romantic suspense, it's, um, several of us authors do a lot of them, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So we get used to working with each other. Um, we know how to do these things. We're very seasoned at it. And it's so, I mean, it's like this sisterhood and this sense of caring about each other and helping each other as we're telling these stories, but also giving each other the, the author freedom that they need. You know, yeah. we're all very respectful of each other's creative abilities and they're very different. Some people are plotters and they yep. know every scene before they start to write the book. I can't imagine that, but <laughs> I, I can't, my brain gets it. I don't feel that, you know, but I, my brain gets it and I respect that. So we're all real respectful of each other, but I love doing them. I love doing these. It's just, it's, especially now during COVID, it's been so nice to, you know, writing is a very isolated business mm -hmm. and it's yeah. been so nice to have this connection with these other authors. And we've been doing like, we just had a Colton, um, uh, we just had a Colton party, Facebook group party um, on our Facebook reader group a couple of weeks ago. And it was all of the Coltons that released in January. So, yeah. Oh, nice. I so I love reading them. They're so, so good. So have you always been a romance reader? Like, how did you get into reading romance? And at what point, because I know you went to college for what, English and journalism. Right. At what point were you like, I want to write one of my own. Yeah. Okay. So um, I went to college for English and journalism because I, my father told me I had to have a college degree before I was allowed to write for Harlequin. That's the only reason I went to college. Um, I, I kid you not. And then I had to go back and certify to teach so I could support myself mm -hmm. because, you know, you can't just apply to Harlequin and get a job. Yes. Um, so I went back for my master's to certify to teach, but I got my first I, I've always been like, I can remember being on the bus in um, elementary school. I always wanted to sit by myself. I remember a very specific day looking out the window. It's still kind of dark outside. There's a big two-story house and lights are on. And the next thing I know, I'm at school. And I've had this whole story in my head about the people in that house. I just have always told myself stories. So I always loved to read and I love Nancy Drew and my brother's Hardy Boys. I would read anything I could get. When I was 14, I was standing with my mother in the grocery store checkout, checkout line and there was a Harlequin Presents book being offered for free. It was called The Honey is Bitter. And I just picked it up. I'm like, it's a free book, okay. Yep. And I read it and I was hooked. From that point on, I read a book a day all through college my mother used to say to me get your nose out of that book she worried about me so much i never dated i just spent my weekends reading books seriously never dated <laughs> until i was in college um and and i would get i it would get to the point where i would say i had a stomach ache so i could go be in the bathroom so i could read my romances because she thought i was spending too much time reading them oh my or God wake up at midnight and read them till two in the morning because mm -hmm. I had a room by myself so I could do that, you know? So I started telling people when I was 14, I was going to write for Harlequin someday. And, you know, I got so many pats on the head and I wrote books and they weren't very good, but I was learning how to write, you know, um, a lot of pats on the head again. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I went to college and because I had to, and that seriously is the total truth. My father said I could be whoever I wanted to be, but only after I got a college degree. Majored <laughs> <laughs> in English because what else is a writer going to major in? Yeah. And actually, I majored in literature 
well, I did both, but um, I loved a lot of the literature that I was exposed to in okay. college, things I never would have read um, that helped me as a writer. Um, Mark Twain in particular, he, he brought so much emotion into his books. I just loved his books. Um, Edgar Allan Poe was another favorite. I don't really get why, because he's creepy and I don't like creepy stuff, but <laughs> he, he just reached me somehow, you know, that, that telltale heart. I mean, you can just feel it beating, right? Yeah. It's that, that level of emotion, I think is what got me. But, um, then I graduated and, and, um, bad stuff, the bad stuff that happened, happened when I was in college. And, um, so, you know, it took some time. And um, I wrote, but I, I, I didn't, what was I going to do, right? Because you can't just apply to Harlequin to be a writer. You know, you have to write books and submit them. And I didn't know that then, but I learned it all. Mm -hmm. um, so I worked and uh, I got a teaching degree, but I hated teaching. I'm sorry to say. Um, I like giving workshops about writing, but teaching high school English was, I watched the clock more as a teacher than I did as a student. Wow. because most of the students don't care. Yeah. And I don't, I didn't want to cram things down their throat. If they didn't love it, I didn't have that gift. I yeah. just didn't have the gift. Um, so I worked as a waitress and, you know, like the starving artist, I really did that. I worked as a waitress. I worked in pretty much every fast food place there was. I went into management um, and I was writing my romances and um, the first one I submitted was to Karen Stalker, who uh, was over at Mills and Boone. I was for the romance line. And she was a senior editor at the time. Um, and later on, she was editorial director. And we met at Harlequin parties and would laugh about this. But um, I had submitted to her and I got that form rejection letter. It's the mm -hmm. same from every publisher. We wish you luck placing it elsewhere. You know, it's two lines. This isn't right for us. We I was devastated. I thought, I mean, I'm in my twenties and I'm thinking my life is over because there is absolutely nothing else I want to do. I don't yeah. have a passion for anything else. This is yeah. what I need to do with my life. So I called the Harlequin. I looked up on, you know, the, you didn't have the internet. I looked up on the back of their books, um, what their address was. And then I looked up, um, I called nine. I called four one one. I called information back then. Remember four one one. Yep. Yep. So I called information and asked for information for Canada. So I'm making all these long distance calls. I get the Harlequin, you know, person that answers the phone, and I say, "May I speak with Karen Stocker, please?" And I must have sounded official because she put me through to her. Wow. Oh my God. And Karen happened to be sitting. She didn't even ask me who I was. But I was so determined to talk to her. And so then I'm guessing it was my tone of voice. But so then she happened to be sitting at her desk and answered her phone. She's mm. Karen Stalker. And I'm like, to me, this is all part of the business. I mean, I was young and I didn't know better. Mm -hmm. But I was just like, I just got a form rejection from you. And then I started to cry. Oh. And I was like, you don't understand. This is my life. Are you telling me I can never write for you? I, this, you know, and she says, oh, no, 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 no. She goes, you, you can submit as many times as you want. You just keep writing and submitting. Mm -hmm. And so that's all I needed to hear. That was it for me for the rest of my life. And then, you know, I wrote another few books that were rejected. Mm -hmm. And then I'd never heard of RWA, but I, um, 
heard of a conference that was taking place here in Phoenix, where there was an editor, turned out to be Marcia Zimberg, who was at that time senior editor for Super Romance. It was just a little local conference, but Marcia was gonna be there. I know none of the rules. Again, I'm this young thing. And I go to the conference and I wait. I had read that she was gonna be introduced at this Friday night cocktail party. So I waited for her to be, I stood up by myself. I didn't know anybody. I waited for her to be introduced and I watched her. And the second she was free, I, you know, no protocol, no manners now that I know about all of this stuff. But Just pure I, drive and passion. That's right. I went straight to her and that woman talked to me for two hours. And I will tell you every other wannabe author at that conference was hated me because I hogged her and I never would have done it if I had had any clue, mm -hmm. but she talked to me and, um, but I had read every single super romance that had ever been, ever been published. Wow. I knew every one of them because wow. I had much passion and I loved the line from the very first super romance that came out. And nice. so we talked super romance and we talked writing. She took me under her wing for two years I would send her stuff. She'd tell me, you know, she honed my craft. I had the storytelling down. I did not have, you know, goal, motivation, and conflict. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that stuff down. And she just helped me with it and bought my first book. And I've been contracted ever since. She bought my first book in 1992, and I have not been without a Harlequin contract since. That is amazing. I think that that is so inspiring. Like first and foremost, taking you back to being 14 and reading your first romance. It wasn't mm -hmm. the story of like your mom telling you, you can't read romance. She was just worried because you were reading so much, but then <laughs> it clicking in your head that like at such a young age, this is what I am meant to be doing. And mm -hmm. there was no doubt. There was no doubt in my mind. And never questioning that, you know, because I think writing as, as a reader, Mm -hmm. seems very intimidating. We read and we enjoy these stories, but every time I finish a book, I'm like, how the heck yep. did she do that? Yep. And so, I mean, and it, it sounds like you, as, as soon as you, it clicked for you, you were on it. Like, I'm going to do what I got to do to make mm -hmm. this happen. But there's also one piece that you kind of touched on is like, just because we read and we enjoy these books, doesn't mean we necessarily know how to do it ourselves. So mm -hmm. what craft stuff did you have to like figure out how to do to now be here talking to us today with almost <laughs> your hundredth book out? <laughs> uh, like um, transitions. Okay. So I, I was great at writing the scenes, but because I can feel it, I can see it, but transitioning from one scene to the next so that it flows for the reader, um, how to let a reader know, um, some of it comes naturally after you've done it a while, but how to actually let a reader know background information without doing the whole dump, you know, okay. you can't do an information dump. So my books to begin with, I wanted to tell everything and okay. I had to learn how to, um, know that there are some things that I know that are never going to go in a book. Yeah. I know things about my characters that never make it to the page, mm -hmm. but they don't need to make it to the page then. And if there's another book, maybe it'll make it to the page later. I, I can give you a great example of that in um, the parent portal series. Mm -hmm. 
there's a book, Her Motherhood Wish was the third book in the series. And it's about this guy, Wood, who um, he was an older brother and he um, quit school to raise his younger brother because their parents were killed. And so he never even got a high school education. And his brother, he went out and put his brother through medical school. And his brother marries, and he marries a, a woman who is now in medical school. And um, then his brother is killed in a car accident. So now Wood ends up marrying, and the, the brother's wife was in that car accident. And she was, they thought, going to be paralyzed for life. She was in real bad shape. Well, so Wood marries her. Even knowing that she was in love with this brother, it was not a love match. It was so neither one of them were alone, but it was for practical purposes. So she had medical insurance. She had someone to take care of her. And she because she was had been a foster kid. Mm -hmm. And so that she could finish her medical training because she worked while his brother was in medical school. So Wood wanted her to have that chance to get through medical school. So Wood's book. He and Elena are now divorced, but they're still living together because they're family. They own this big house and they each live in separate ends of the house. And um, she has a door out. She has her own door out to the garage, doesn't even have to come into the house, but they do share a kitchen. They just have separate suites. And um, but so here's Wood, you know, and he's gone into construction. He's made a really successful life for himself. But he never did finish high. I mean, he got his GED, but he's got basically no education. And his brother um, was um, during med school. He did his residency at the parent portal. Yeah. So he was d getting everybody he knew to donate sperm because the parent portal was just starting up then. Mm -hmm. So he had hit up wood to donate sperm, which he did, but only for his brother. And he knows no one's ever going to use it, right? Because you read about the person donating the sperm, who's going to yeah. want some guy that never graduated high school. So now all of a sudden he gets a call from a woman who is pregnant with his baby. And it looks like there might be an issue with the fetus where it might need a blood transfusion and the mother's blood doesn't match. So she's hoping Woods does. Okay. So that's the start of that book. And you go through this whole thing. Well, here's Elena out here. She's in Woods book. She has to be, she's living in his house. Mm -hmm. She's his ex-wife and they're living together. And there's so many nuances going on. Right? So I finished that book and I'm just like, I can't leave Elena alone. Yeah. So she got her own book and that's the book that was out in January, the child who changed them. So, so, yeah. I mean, you, you, you fell in love with the books at 14. So way before, you know, you're going to actually publish something, but like as a reader of Harlequin, you know, I look and I'm like, how does a new writer go into this world? It seems yeah. even more intimidating than just than just trying to write in general because there are restrictions like yes. page count and and you know all word count and all of that stuff. But I also think if I was a writer and I could accomplish this, I would feel as though I can now do anything. Yeah. So were you ever intimidated at all by that like what are your thoughts as far as I mean I just I 
I think back to like my military day logic. It's like everybody that comes in has to go through basic training. I feel like everyone that writes romance <laughs> should try to write for Harlequin or a category <laughs> romance and then you can do anything. Yeah. I I think um I think that answer would be different for every author for me. Um I had I've always had the voices in my head and because I read so many Harlequin romances, I knew the reader promise because yeah. I expected to get it. And I knew the voices. I knew the feeling that I was going for. Because when I write those books, it's when I write books now, they do the same thing for me as when I used to read them. So for instance, COVID. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is any better. I'm just different. I have always been weird. I have never fit in anywhere. And even in the writing world, I don't totally fit in because I've never had, I don't do critiquing. I don't do plotting with anybody. I, it's always been just me and me. Still um, that girl on the bus. I still Writing am. a story. Yep. <laughs> but, but here's the thing for me. Writing is my sacred place. It is my salvation. Just like reading romances take you away mm -hmm. and they leave you feeling good. That's what writing does for me. So during COVID, as a matter of fact, I've been getting uh, emails this week from um, my people at Harlequin congratulating me on the 100th book. And a couple of them have talked about my energy during COVID and how you know, so many people are struggling and, and I know a lot of my writer friends have struggled and here I am just producing, producing to me, that's what has saved me mm. that because I believe in these books, I believed them at 14 and I believe in them now. Mm. And I think that that's probably why I didn't struggle with the going through basic training, because to me, this is larger than life. This mm. is putting out into the world that love is real mm -hmm. and hope exists. I believed it at 14. It took me through the worst times of my life. And it's taking me through COVID because above all that feeling you get when you read a romance, that sense of hope, that feeling of love, that's so real. That's not just make believe. That's not just in these little books. That is the most powerful thing on earth right there. Yeah. And, and so to me, that's just always where I've been with it. Now, do I have doubts? Oh yeah. All the time, all the time, because each book, you know, what if it doesn't sell? What if I don't manage to bring that feeling to my reader? What if I don't follow the reader promise? What if I disappoint? You know, and it's not about the basic training. It's not about the how to write. It's about the stories themselves. You know, do I, am I still showing them that love and hope? Am I still giving them that promise? I worry, I worry all the time about that kind of stuff. And, you know, is Harlequin still going to like me for another contract? I'm reading those letters from them that I told you about. And it's like, they're talking about the future. I kid you not. I'm the 14 year old girl going, Oh, thank God I've got a future. Yeah. You know, people <laughs> think you take that for granted, mm -hmm. but I don't. That's where I, that's every single time I am out of contract. I am like on house arrest because I am worried and that makes me tense. And, you know, I just need to know I'm under contract and then I'm okay. 
That's who awesome. were some of the authors that became favorites when you discovered it at 14 and yeah. started binging the series? Violet Winspear mm. was, was really one of my favorites. That's the one I remember the most. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 90s, I read like Pat Warren and Chris Flynn. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite author back then was Jennifer Cruzy. She wrote for Temptation. Yes. And then she went on and wrote um, single title books. And she still remains one of my all-time go-tos. I mean, I read a lot of them. I read Debbie, of course, a ton, Debbie Maycomer. Um, um, I read, oh man, off the top of my head, I can't really think. I um, I read Susan Elizabeth Phillips, but she didn't ever write for Harlequin that I'm aware of. Um, and then as I became a writer, I mean, you think I got published when I was still young. Yeah. So I didn't really read as many um, as many books because oh, Patricia Potter, she's another one from back when. Um, I didn't read as many books because I didn't want to incorporate somebody else's voice into my work. Right. Okay. You know, That's I great. wanted to stay pure with that. But mm-hmm. I have always read Susan Elizabeth Phillips and Jennifer Cruzy because they are the only two writers that can take me outside of being a writer. When I read their books, I get so lost in them. I don't even recognize a transition or a conflict or a character. I'm living those books like I did when I was 14. That, that's the, the one problem, if, if, to give you a question to ask me, <laughs> the, the one bad thing about being so published is that it's hard for me to be able to find that that escape that I found at 14 when I could just read a book and get lost in the book. It's yeah. really hard because you're, you know, you're in there and your voice is saying, oh, I would have done this. Or, you know, mm-hmm. Jennifer Cruzy and Susan Elizabeth, unfortunately, Jenny isn't, I know Jenny, I got to know her very well. And um, we, we did some, served together on some things, but um, she isn't really, writing so much now. So uh, not, not in women's fiction. So, um, but Susan's got a new book out and I'm looking forward to it. I always plan, you know, when I'm allowed to read. So, yeah. (laughs) And I mean, I read, you know, like Heather Graham, she, I I grew up with Heather and um, I, I don't know, Heather's always been like my big sister, it seems like. And I always looked up to her. I've always watched her and, um, Linda Lale Miller is another one. Janet Daly. Do you remember Janet Daly? I used to love her books. Oh, I loved her books. So, yeah. So, If someone was new to Susan Elizabeth Phillips and Jennifer Cruzy, if they had never read either one of them before, what would be like one, four newbies to both of those author titles that you would recommend? You know, I don't, I don't want to recommend um, because their books, what grabs me to their books is their voice. And okay. you're going to get that in any one of any them. One of them. Mm-hmm. So read the back covers and whichever storyline, because like Susan, she had a book that the storyline didn't really speak to me mm-hmm. and because it was about football. And I'm just, I'm just not a huge football fan. I know that's horrible, but I'm just not guys on the field hurting each other. Just 
hurts hurts me. Um, that's not to say I don't watch it, but I'm just not a huge fan of football. And it was a book centered around football and the ownership of a football team and all of this. And I read the whole book and I really liked the book, mm-hmm. but I would not recommend that as my favorite yeah. because I don't like football. You see what I mean? I, so yeah, no. if you like football, that might be your favorite. And truthfully, I've read every one of Jenny's books and I've read every one that I know of, of Susan's, and there isn't one of them that doesn't have that voice that grabs me. It's just, they're both, like, Susan is, is more um, openly got those light comedy moments. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, my sense of humor is, um, again, weird. Most people laugh at stuff, and I'm like, huh? And then I'm laughing at stuff people don't laugh at. But um, Susan, she makes me laugh out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also, she grips you with that conflict that you can feel, you know, yeah. and she, but she's much funnier. And like, if you follow her on Facebook, I mean, Susan's just playing funny. you laugh at her posts all the time. She's just <laughs> one of those people. Um, Jenny, her books have this quirky, mm-hmm. quirky lightness to them. And you're laughing all the way through or smiling all the way through. And then you get to the end and you don't even know it, but she has stabbed you in the gut yeah. and in a good way. I mean, she has made you love these people and feel these things. And she brings you to their happy ending and you were laughing and you didn't even know you were hurting mm-hmm. because she helped you through the pain with mm, the humor. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, the both of them. They're just, I don't know. They just, both of them get me like that. So. So we know that you served as the president of RWA and you served on the board of directors for like Mm -hmm. eight years. Wow. What are some of the, you know, highlights and, you know, fun moments and lessons that you took away from that experience of like being part of that? Okay. Um, Not a lot of, not uh, more not fun than fun okay um it was it was a ton of work Mm -hmm. and it was extremely difficult because especially as president um I'm glad I did it for the life lessons it taught me it is something I would never ever ever in a million years do again because you're carrying the weight of this huge organization on your shoulders and you have a board um but you are the one that has to speak to everything and you are, have signed these confidentiality agreements. So you can't say so many things and then you're only allowed to speak what your board tells you and what the final decisions are and you can't speak your own beliefs. And that was extremely painful to me, extremely painful because I was judged by people and I and and it was my place to take the brunt for the organization, but I wasn't allowed to say what I really felt and what I really, you know, and I didn't get to vote. President doesn't get to vote. Um, but the weight of those decisions, even when I was on the board, um, it, it was excruciating because mm-hmm. you were you you we at that time we had 10,000 members. We were a multi-million dollar organization. And we were responsible for that. And we were volunteers, you know, and you're doing your best. And we all lived all over the country. So I took that responsibility so 
so to heart and so seriously. And, um, and maybe I took some of the joy out of it because of that. However, great times too, in that, um, Patricia Potter, for one, served on a lot of a lot of the years that I did. She and I became closer than sisters through all of that. And, you know, Pat's almost my mother's age. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, almost my mother's age within a year. Um, but Pat is just a soulmate, close friend that I know. I mean, we are just blood sisters. And it's because of the time on the board. There are others also, you know, you bond when you're going through tough times and your memberships you know, part of your membership wants this and part of your membership wants that. And they're both rabidly at you for it. And, you know, um, I spoke to a reporter from Politico um, a couple of years ago at the RWA conference. She wanted to talk to me as as um, past president of RWA. And we talked about the fact that RWA was really a microcosm of our country here in the United States, politically speaking. and um, and it really was, we dealt with issues in RWA long before our country started dealing with them openly. Mm-hmm. And, and it was hard. It was so hard because you had both sides and you weren't allowed to say any of this stuff. And, you know, it just was, it was excruciating. Um, and, and I think I, I know a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff I've read about my board was awful. Um, but what I know is my board opened a door that hadn't been opened and we fought hard to get that door open. And I'm really proud of that. So that was a good memory for me. Um, otherwise, you know, um, I don't, I don't know. I just, I'm glad I did it. I learned a ton. I made some great friendships. I'm glad it's over. Never want to go back. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, I think of like being surrounded by a bunch of other once upon a time, 14 year old girls who also fell in love with romance, but then you're going to see kind of the other side of that. So that's totally understandable. And it's, it was, it was a mixture, you know, you want to believe that, I mean, this is a, this is reality here and maybe I shouldn't say it, but you want to believe that all of us authors are sisters and it's a sisterhood or sisters and brothers. I say sisters only because most of the people that write for um, my two category romance lines are women. Um, But, but I do have some um, male authors that I also very much feel close to and respect. Um, Ken, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember what name he used to write by, um, but he wrote, yes, thank you. Wrote for, <laughs> wrote for supers for years. And, uh, we used to do, you know, go when we were at conference, you know, I just, Ken is great. I loved his wife too. She's absolutely just, I mean, she would come to our conferences and just be one of us, you know? Um, but, um, however, in this business, um, it's very cutthroat and, you know, you think about Harlequin gets about a thousand submissions a week wow. and they might buy one. Mm-hmm. That's very cutthroat. Yes. And, you know, so when you're sitting there on a board and everybody wants to make it mm-hmm. and, the, you know, a lot of them were not published. Um, I, 
I was published when I started on the RWA board, but I was newly, I, I wasn't newly published, but I felt, you know, mm -hmm. there were authors that were way more published than me back then. Um, and it was, um, it was, it was difficult because are you meeting the needs? Uh, we had to meet the needs of career focused romance writers. That's what it says. That's what our mission statement is. That's how we're incorporated career focused romance writers, but you have 7,000 of your members who are unpublished. Mm -hmm. So are they career focused? Do you meet yeah. their needs? What about the highly published authors? Do you meet their needs? I mean, it was, it was very, very difficult. And because there were so few slots, there was lots of jealousy, lots of, oh, well, you're getting to meet this editor and you're, you know, it, it just was not, it was hard. So you, you learn to only really trust, like authors don't talk about how much money they're making. They don't talk about the size of their contracts. They don't talk about a lot of those things because you really can't, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's, it, it, it's not like we're all just the 14. I was, I was um, telling Sarah in, in an email, my best friend, um, we were best friends from the time we were five. And when I found Harlequin Romance, I introduced her to them and we would spend all of our time together reading our books. We would just sit or lay next to each other. We'd pull chairs right up next to each other and sit there and read books and then hand them off to each other, trade them, read them again. <laughs> and, you know, and she was involved in every aspect of my career. And she's the one I told everything to. And she's the one I talked because she got it, you know, mm -hmm. deep down. So, and, and Patricia Potter, I talked to her about, um, we don't talk numbers, but we do talk, you know, some of the business stuff, even now, like, you know, we talk some of it, but yeah, otherwise it's, you know, so it, it wasn't really the 14 year old girls. It wasn't like that. Okay. <laughs> Golly. Wow. <laughs> it sounds really stressful. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> parts of it. I mean, you know, there's. It, it, it's glamorous too. Let me talk to you about the parties. Let me talk to you <laughs> yes. about that. I mean, there is glamour to it. It's just the questions you're asking here. I think <laughs> it is somewhere else. I think like president just, I mean, especially with that many people, my goodness, yes. but you know, I'm yes. pretty sure that there, there were, you know, the parties and the fun moments that kind of made up for it. But yeah, as president and you know, you're the president, so you would think that that comes with a lot of voice, but then you're the president. You just got to show up and. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It really wasn't my voice. It comes with yeah. a lot of voice, but it's not my voice. But not yours. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, it gave me respect for leaders everywhere mm -hmm. because I know that they can't just do what they think. Mm -hmm. They have to do what their constituents want them to do or what, you know, what others vote for them to have to do, your hands are so tied. And it just, uh, for leaders of companies and leaders of, you know, like my mayor here in the little city where I live, I mean, I really feel for him. People are arguing over which trash company to use and he's not going to get it right because whichever one he chooses, half of his people are going to be mad at him, right? That's you know? Exactly. So, yeah. So we wanted to ask you, one of our like get to know the romance reader tag questions. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so if you could be mm -hmm. the heroine in a category romance novel, what line either past or current would you want to be in? Mm -hmm. 
what's one trope that you would want to have in the story and what author either past or current would you want to write the book Mm -hmm. all right the line is super romance of course okay um and the trope oh if it's for me um (laughs) I don't know something one of the baby ones Mm -hmm. okay um maybe secret baby but it would need to be the hero has to be the father okay um so um whether we were married of convenience and I end up pregnant or you know it has to be a baby trope and he has to be the father um secret baby I could maybe do that but I'd have a hard time keeping it a secret from him because I feel like a dad has the right to know yeah it would have to be a really good reason why I was keeping the secret I mean I write these books so I could come up with a good reason but um and the author I, I have no idea I have no idea I mean I would have to say um I don't know can I say me sure let me just do it sure. not because I'm my favorite author but because I don't, I don't know. I don't want to pick an author like, you know, Debbie, Rayanne. I, you know, I've already talked about Susan and Jenny. And although I think that maybe they couldn't do me as well, because I don't have that sense of humor. But, you know, I mean, I know so many really deep, good writers, Heather Graham. I mean, she writes such emotional books. So maybe Heather. Yeah. I'm excited. Heather Graham is one of Sarah's favorite authors. Oh, and I, I hauled a bunch of silhouette shadows and I yeah. was like, there's a Heather Graham novel in here. It's the last Cavalier. So we're going to read that together. I'm so oh, good. Excited. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta tell you, Heather is so genuine. She mm-hmm. just is the most giving genuine person. I just, I, I've seen her when she's tired. I've seen her when she's worried. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's still genuine. Yeah. She's still just genuine. So, yeah. 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 And I, I mean, I didn't start reading romance until 2017. And when I, I mean, when Sarah and I became friends, that's when I really got introduced to category. And I had all, like, my first romance author was Debbie Maycomber. I picked up Dashing Through the Snow, one of her Christmas romances. And one thing that I learned through Sarah is like, a lot of your favorite authors, if you check, they wrote category before. Mm-hmm. I, freaked out when I was like Debbie Maycomber wrote category romance like this is incredible started out she started out those skinny little romances that's when I met Debbie is yep. back when she was writing skinny little romances so yep, yep. it's yep. it's pretty amazing how many of them you know okay yeah. let's do some finish the sentence are you ready okay <laughs> okay when when I'm not writing I'm thinking about writing okay that makes sense now that we've talked that's to unfortunate you. but you know my poor husband you know we're in the car on a road trip and all of a sudden you know I'm quiet for 45 minutes and don't even realize it mm-hmm. because a whole story has presented itself <laughs> or I start coming his biggest thing is I have a habit of I'm in the middle of a story in my head and I just blurt out a sentence and he has no idea what this sentence relates to because I'm, I'm asking his opinion on something, but he doesn't know the whole story behind what it is I'm asking him. So he'll say, okay, where are we now? You know, but, 
and, and um, I inline skate. I love to inline skate and I love to shop. So awesome. And is, climb is, mountains. We, we mountain climb. Oh, when wow. you're skating, is that kind of a way for you to turn author brain off just a little bit and like escape in something else? No. So when I'm skating, um, generally when, when my life is in a perfect mode, I skate every morning and I plot, I don't plot, but I think about what happened in the book yesterday and I get in the people's head. I come home, shower, get to the page and it all flows out. Oh, I love it. It's kind of like another way for you to be writing. That's Yeah. Now I'll tell you what I do. The only place I have ever found to get myself out, and this is, it's, it's, you know, not a great thing, but I go to the casino. Um, and I started that. So my daughter was, a uh, a dancer. She had an agent and she used to go all these different places to dance. She danced with Jerry Lewis and his telethon one time. Um, but she, um, used to have to go to Vegas so the very first time I was with her in, there in Vegas, she was just really little and she was in a competition there and I saw the slot machines and my mom took me over to them. And for the very first time in my life, the noise in my head was quiet. Wow. Because there's, there's color, there's, it, it, it takes every sense. Mm-hmm. You've got the emotion in the anticipation of I might win. Mm-hmm. You've got the sights, you've got the sounds, you've got the smells, they're not always good, but boy, they're overpowering. (laughs) You know, you've got, and you've got the touch. I mean, you just keep touching. So you've got it all. So I have learned that after every book, I need to unwind by going to the casino. So this past year has been extremely difficult for me, Mm -hmm. because I mean, I've been doing that for over 20 years. Wow. And this past year has been extremely difficult for me because I haven't been able to go. So tomorrow's my second shot. And two weeks from tomorrow, you know where we're going to be. Luckily, <laughs> we have here in Arizona, we have lots of casino resorts around us. So we're heading out. But... Up here as well, Canada. I My dad loved, we loved going to the slots. My grandmother just thought it was a delight. We take her all the time. <laughs> Oh, it's how we are with my mom. My mom's it waiting is. to go back to. So it's fun, yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as you so. know, as as my dad always said, you go in to make a donation, and then you leave. <laughs> you don't you to win. <laughs> and that's exactly right. And I have never had a problem with that. I think because my parents taught me very young. Yeah. But I I get to the point where if I've lost a certain amount, it's not fun for me anymore. Then exactly. I start to worry, and I gotta go. That's right. So I'm, I'm really lucky about that. I, I have, I have a very definite shut off point where I get in a mood where I'm like, I don't want to be here yep. and we go, you know, so we know, and my husband and I know going in, this is the money that yeah. we're giving, you know, and then we're paying for our entertainment is how we, how we talk about it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. We're just paying for our entertainment. And mm-hmm. you know, if we happen to win, then yay. Excellent. Exactly. It's, a, it's an added bonus when you leave. <laughs> we get to come back sooner (laughs) for more entertainment. (laughs) All right. Next is one of the loves of my life is. Hmm. I mean, writing really Mm -hmm. writing is a love in my, my animals, my dogs, my husband, my, my daughter. I mean, you know, basic. Yep. Do you write on your computer or are you, do you like handwrite in notebooks? 
No, I type 120 words a minute. Believe okay. it or not, I type as fast as I think. Okay. So I, I can do 35 pages in a day. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. My most comfortable attire is? My new slippers. I love my new slippers. <laughs> so I, I am one who always dresses to come to the office. I dress every day like I'm going to work because I feel like you have to feel good about yourself in order to give your best. So I know a lot of writers, they write in sweats, they do all of that. I just can't. If I come to the office in sweats, I'm a slug. I don't get anything done. I feel kind of depressed. I feel kind of gray. So every morning I get up and I put on, during the summer, I wear dresses and skirts all the time. In the winter, I mean, here in Arizona, our winter, we get down to, you know, 40s. But um, but my my legs, my ankles and legs get cold. So I'll wear, you know, like legging, nice pants, whatever. Um, but I love my new slippers. They're furry and they come up over my ankles. They're these little booty things that I found. Oh, nice. So they're not, they're my most comfortable attire right now. And I have worn them to the office a few times. I don't every day, but I have a few times with my, I'll dress and then put my slippers on. There you I go. love that. It's like you show up for yourself. And yeah. I think every girl needs to have a comfy, cute pair of slippers. Absolutely. <laughs> Mine. <laughs> okay. The hill I will wholeheartedly die on is? Love is real. Love is real and hope exists. Mm -hmm. And that's it for me. So if I, the one thing I always told my daughter, and if I had one thing I could tell everybody is listen to your heart and act on what it tells you. As long as you're listening to your true heart, because love is real and it's the most powerful entity on earth. I know it. I've lived it. I've been through some really tough things and I know that love is what pulls us through. Oh yeah. And it's stronger than any evil. I just, to me, that's it. That's my bottom line always has been. And yep. I sure don't want to live long enough to ever change that. And I want to live to be over a hundred. (laughs) So Sarah, do you want to do our Let's rapid, do the rapid fire? fire? Let's do rapid fire. She's going to just ramble these off. Don't think too hard about them, yep. but I'm excited to see what you have. Okay, go All ahead. Right. You decide to have takeout for dinner. Where are you ordering from and what's your order? Panda Express, honey walnut shrimp. The movie you will never stop watching is? Annie. Ten years from now, you're writing your memoir. What's the title of it? I have more to write. <laughs> I'm pre-ordering it right now. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> the song that you will always crank up the volume for and sing along with no shame is? I am woman. Yes. Helen Reddy. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, your category romance thesis statement is? I already gave it to you. Love is real. Love is hope real. Exists. You got it. And hope exists. Um, and the last thing that uh, we want to ask is if we were building a time capsule to include romance novels to be opened in a hundred years, what's one book you would want to include in there? One of yours and one of somebody else's perhaps. Oh man, rapid fire. <laughs> Can I put I, everlasting I, love in there? Everlasting love. Yeah. I wanna, <laughs> I, if I were going to do one, I think of mine, it would be the night we met. <gasps> because it's my parents' true life love story. 
And yes, the night we met. Yes, that's. I'm thinking of like it says "everlasting love" at the top, but it's that's, called the night we met. I love that yes. book. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the one I would do. Um, and I think for the overall one, I would choose the honey is bitter. And the reason I would choose it is because it's what it gripped me and gave me this life. That's yeah. fair. So that's fair. I with the night we met, I was like, I don't think I've ever read a romance novel with a nun. Yeah. What is she do? What are how is she gonna pull this off? And it was so the author's good. note got me when I started it, and I I I messaged Bree and I read her the author's note. I'm like, you need to pick up this book right now. Off of the author's note, and I was like, you know, like that little like beginning that? part. Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I just, that story just poured out of me. And I mean, there are obviously things were changed, but it's basically their true life love story. And the last scene in that book, um, I won't, if you haven't read it yet, I won't blow it. But the last scene in that book is completely true. I was in the room, I witnessed it and I told it exactly as it happened because I had to, it was my dad, you know? Yeah. So. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's beautiful. I, I just, I loved the whole setup of the book because she has no questions about, and, and it feels now that we've talked to you, it feels like a little bit of yourself because she knows this is what I'm I'm doing and I'm not changing yeah. my mind. This is what I'm meant to be doing. Mm-hmm. And then you as a reader, the hero comes in and you're like, you see how like, he's supportive. He's not coming in and telling her like, do something different. It's just like, can I see you one more time before I leave? And mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh my God. It just, it was so good. Well, you <laughs> know, I, I am my mother's daughter, so I'm guessing <laughs> she probably taught me Aww. a lot, yeah. but by her example, I mean, my mom now she's 85 years old mm-hmm. and she still lives alone and um, a house that she and my dad built together. And she runs this boutique for her church. She totally runs it. She keeps track of all the inventory, all the storage of the inventory. She brings all the crafters together. She collects everything. Um, They made, not this year because of COVID, last year they made over $14,000 in one weekend. She donates all the money to children's ministries. Um, And she's a gourd artist. She's now doing all of this gourd art that I'm just in awe of. 85 years old, you know? I mean- She's a huge inspiration to me. Amazing. Yeah. So amazing. Well, you've definitely been an inspiration. I have just loved having this opportunity to for chat sure. with you. I mean, for sure. I think as women, sometimes like we have these callings, but then life gets in the way mm-hmm. and you start, well, I'll do it when I'm done with school. I'll do mm-hmm. it once the kids are out the house or whatever. And it just to hear you say, I knew what I was meant to do at 14 and you like hustled and chased that passion. Yeah. It's so inspiring. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's amazing. I'll, I'll tell you, my daughter, um, she started college when she was eight. <laughs> she was, I, I'm not kidding. She was um, just very, she's, she's just a very special individual. Yeah. And so I was writing, obviously I was under contract by then. And I would take my laptop, which back then they were these big, heavy, bulky things and lug it on my little shoulder. I stand five, one, you know, and 
I would go outside her college classroom every before every semester, we would go find the rooms where her classes were going to be and we would find the closest plug. And I would sit on the floor on those hard tile floors outside her classroom and type my books while she was in class and then stop and go to the next class and then type and stop and go to the next class. So I say that to say that you can always find an excuse. I could have waited yeah. till, you know, cause I have to chaperone my kid to school cause she had to go to school and, um, and she never actually went to regular school. She tested out of regular school when she was five. So she was in a special program until she was eight when it was time to take college entrance exams. Wow. So she was in a special program through John Hopkins University. So, you know, I had a lot of excuses, but if you, it, to, to me, you have to be your own best friend because if you wait for someone else to be that best friend, it's not going to happen for you. And you deserve that. You deserve to give yourself your best you know, and the way you do that is you listen to your heart and you follow your heart. And that doesn't mean that you become selfish and only you matter and only what you need to do matters. It means you find a way to be a good, loving wife and mother and sister and daughter and whoever else you are, you find a way to be all of those things and still find time for what you have to do for you. So, and I, I actually have a whole workshop on that. <laughs> I do. I kid you not. I that that motivation workshop is something that I've been asked to do all over the place when I go speak because of that. Because you find a way to make it work. Absolutely. Well, for anyone that's listening, I mean, how can they keep up with you? And if they're interested in workshops and stuff like that, is that on your website? Like, where can we stalk you on the World Wide Web from oh. our couches? Yeah. <laughs> TaraTaylorQuinn.com. Okay. Um, I'm on Facebook, Tara Taylor Quinn. I'm on Twitter, Tara Taylor Quinn. Um, Instagram is TTQuinn1. Um, I'm on Goodreads, Tara Taylor Quinn. I'm not as active there. I know I should be. I just feel like such a loser because I don't read enough. So I don't, I'm so busy writing. I don't read enough. So I can't be a contributing member to the community reviewing these books and, and giving, you know, so I just feel like a loser when I'm there. I don't, I don't feel like I have enough to contribute on Goodreads, but I should be there more. Um, you contribute a, the books for us to read. So you'll right. never be a loser. <laughs> I have an author page on Amazon. The one thing I, I do post on Facebook every single day um, under my profile, which is Tara Taylor Quinn dash Tim Barney. That is my husband. And the reason he's there is because the book we wrote together Okay. He was copyrighted on that book and we used my profile when that book first came out. Um, Harlequin actually partnered with HCI and there was a lot of publicity when the book was supposed to be coming out. And then the line was canceled by the president of HCI. And so it kind of went backwards, but we kept that Facebook profile. Um, okay. I'm the only one that posts on it. It's just, and he never posted on it. It was just because his name was on that book. Okay. Um, so, but Tara Taylor Quinn, Tim Barney, I post every single day. And then my website, it, well, most days, um, my website um, is updated really often. So those are the two places probably to find the most. Okay. 
Awesome. Well, thank you yes. so much for taking the time out of your day to this was amazing. chat with us. I know. Oh, I know. I'm sitting here so like writing down now. all of these quotes <laughs> to like name the episode. I have like, I have love is real and hope exists. I have be yeah. your own best friend. Like yeah. so many, so many <laughs> quotes in this episode that we can name this. <laughs> so thank you. I cannot wait for this you know, for everyone to get the opportunity to, to listen to this and yes. everything, all of your socials will be listed. So if you're mm -hmm. listening, please go follow and read and keep up with yes. the queen, Tara Taylor yes. Quinn herself. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun.